Titus chapter 2. Thank you. Uh, just briefly let me say thank you for letting me be here this week, uh, spend time with you. Uh, I don't care who it is. Anytime you can stand before a group of God's people and, and teach the gospel, it's a privilege, a blessing, and uh, a very scary responsibility to preach truth and love. So somebody once told me, a dear friend of mine said, when you preach, he said, preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. And he said, hide yourself behind the cross and never preach yourself. So that's all I'm going to say about me is thank for being here. All that Gary said, other things we'll talk about as we get to know each other better through the week. We're here this morning to put Christ first and to exalt and glorify him. So that's what we want to do with our time. So I'm going to start with you in Titus 2 because I want to show you where we're going this week. All right, and I'm going to let Titus chapter 2 kind of build us to where we're headed. Then we're going to jump to our central text for this morning first. Titus chapter 2, you, most of you probably know verses 11 through 14. <coughs> we know that two of the most beautiful things about God's grace are revealed in this text. The one thing we know about God's beautiful grace is that it's brought salvation. And it's brought the means to which you and I can be saved, redeemed, sanctified, made right with God. But the second thing that it teaches there is that that same grace of God instructs you and I on how to live. Look with me at verse 11. Just read a couple of verses with me. He says, For by grace you have, or for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, sell us for good deeds. I want you to notice what he says there, that God's grace instructs you and I. How does he instruct? But through Scripture, the thing we already know is the Scriptures, God's Word, it's an extension, an outgrowth of God's grace. It's a part of God's grace given to us, which is His Word. In that Scripture, He teaches and shows you and I how to live in this present age. And I, I have that underlined here because what we already know, sometimes we forget, but what teaches people more is what we do than what we say. How I live and what I do has more impact than what I say. And that's going to always be that way. All right? He's saying my word, my scriptures, the grace that I've extended to you, the giving you of my word, it's so that you and I will know how to live our life before a watching world. So he says part of that is you deny ungodliness and worldly lust. But then he says in 12, I'm going to show you how to live, um, mine says, sensibly, righteously. But if you'll notice, it also says, and godly. That's our focus this week. That's what we're going to talk about. Is we're going to be talking about what godly people do. And what you and I are going to do is we're going to look at the scripture. What God has done, he's instructed us by giving us these scriptures and people's lives and examples in these scriptures that you and I were going to look at. And what we're going to try to do is we're going to step into their life. 
and we're going to step into certain godly people's lives at certain times and occasions in their life. And what we're going to see is how did these people live? What did they do? How did they behave in this specific situation? When they face this circumstance, what does a godly person do? And then we're going to look and see the answer through the instruction of God's Word. And so it gives you and I the attitude, the behaviors that God wants us to have to know how to live in these same types, circumstances, situations in our lives. The people we're going to look at live in different times and different places, but I'll tell you something, people don't change. And God certainly hasn't changed. That goes without saying. But they're not really different than us. You know, I, I lived in Brazil, and I've preached and taught some other parts of the world. But what was kind of cool, no matter where I go, there's, there's always those people that are just the same like you knew over here. You know, I moved back to Alabama a year and a half ago, uh, back where we grew up, uh, from a church I've been with in Kentucky. And it's just funny, some of the people, they're just the same. You know, there's that couple. Man, they remind me just of that other couple back there, you know. And the kids, you know, man, that's just like, you know, Johnny. But, and it's just, that's how people are. And I don't care what language you speak. That's just always the case. And that's what we see here. So that's our goal this week. What do godly people do? And we're going to be trying to find answers for that in the hopes that when we go through our similar circumstances as we see them in, will behave the way they behave. Now let's look at our first one. Take your Bibles and go with me to Luke chapter 24. My goal this morning, the first lesson, we're going to at least look at three. We're going to look at two right here. Then one more I'm going to take you to. But we're going to look at what we know without question are three godly people. And what we're going to try to learn is the specific lesson I want to kind of leave with you this morning in our first lesson on what godly people do. All right. The backdrop is the first day of the week. To most everybody alive at that time, it was the first day like any other day. There was nothing special about this first day of the week. I would dare say the bulk of the world at that time. But you and I know the truth, don't we? This was the most important first day of the week in all of history because it's the day Christ was raised from the dead. So he's been raised up. Here we are on Sunday, and I want you to see what he does here. Start with me in verse 13 in your Bibles, and let's read the text here of what's happening on the very day that Jesus Christ is raised from the dead. Okay? And behold, two of them were going to the very, that very day to a village named Emmaus, which is about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about all the things that had taken place. And while they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, What are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you're walking? And they stood still looking sad, and one of them named Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem, and unaware of the things which have happened here these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, The things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet mighty in deed and word in the sight of God and all the people. 
and how the chief priests and the rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it's the third day since these things happened. But also some women among us amazed us when they were at the tomb early in the morning, and he didn't find his body, and they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women also had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Now pause there with me. Uh, my whole life I grew up hearing the story as a young man. And here I even can see sermon titles on little projectors or whatever that they would call this two men on the road to Emmaus. Well, it never tells you anything about two men. Let's back up and think about this. How many people's names did you see in that reading? We talked about Christ, but of the two on the road, we only know one of their names, Cleopas. And I have no clue who that is. We don't have a clue who this person is. And what's even more interesting to me, we don't even know who the second person is. We have the name of one unknown disciple of Christ, clearly. We don't know who the other disciple even is. But what I'm hoping you're going to see this morning is though there are a lot of things we don't know, there are some things we can know to a certainty about both of these disciples. And that's going to be the main thing I want you to see. But before we get there, number one, we don't know who they are. Cleopas, the second one, unknown. Here's something else that's interesting. The Bible text says that Emmaus was seven miles from Jerusalem, but people still really don't know where Emmaus is. If you pull up your Bible map and you were to pan through it, you might find somewhere that they kind of put, here's Emmaus, but the reality is we really don't know exactly where this city was located in relation to seven miles from Jerusalem. So again, I think that it's just kind of interesting, isn't it? These two unknown people that we don't really know, they're headed to a city that we don't really know specifically other than its distance from Jerusalem. We know where they were going to Emmaus, but that's, that's about it. Keep thinking about this. We know the time stamp. It's been three days since these things have happened. So we're on the first day of the week. And so I think the first thing I want you to see when we look at this story is the beauty of the idea that on the most dramatic day in all of history, that Christ the Lord, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, would go to these two unknown people and would join them. What are you talking about? What are you discussing? And then he would begin and just unpack the scriptures about himself and and would teach these two disciples. Now, the first thing I wanted to say before we get to our, our main idea here, the thing I want you to mainly see about them, in that instance, I don't know who they are. 
But he did. He did. God knew them. He knew exactly who they were. He knew where they were going. He knew where they were been. And he overtakes them. And then he teaches them. And what I think is beautiful about that, for all of us, he knows me. He knows you. And he knows your name. And so many in this world will never know you, but God does. And I think that's a beautiful a beautiful picture here in this story. And I want to appreciate the relationship that we have with God. He knows me. I mean, do me a favor. Hold, hold your place, if please. Hold your place here. And will you just briefly turn to Hebrews 11 with me? And I, I just want to show you this just really quickly. Hebrews chapter 11. We'll go back to Luke 24. But drop down with me. We've got all these men and women of faith that's mentioned the bulk of this chapter. But look with me starting about verse 32. Okay? And the Hebrew writer says, What more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell you of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel, the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lion, quenched the power of the fire, escaped the edge of the sword from weakness, were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign enemies fly, women received back their dead by the resurrection, and others were tortured not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection and others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sown in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskin, goatskin, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men upon the world was not worthy. Wandering in deserts, mountains, caves, and holes, stop there. That first group of people we know Barak, Gideon, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel. But then he shifts. He says, now here are these others in 36, mocking, scourging, others. Who who are they? I don't know. We don't know them. But God does. God does. So yeah, we know David and Samson, Gideon. Oh yeah, of course God knows, but he knows me. He knows me. And he knows my life. He knows my experiences. He knows my pains. He knows my heartaches. He knows me. Man, that makes you special. Because God knows who we are. Now I'm going back to Luke 24 because I want to pick up reading just one more second here. But I want you to see at least the first thing I want you to take out of this is the master of the universe, the creator of all there is. He knows who we are. And he cares. But now, let's shift gears because here's what I want you to see to a certainty. I may not know who they are, but I know the only thing that matters about them. And let me show you what that is. If you're still there with me in the text, I want to pick up reading in verse 28 of Luke 24. It says, They approached the village where they were going, and he acted by the beaches as though he were going farther. But they urged him, saying, Stay with us, for it's getting toward evening, and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them, and when he had reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and he blessed it, breaking it, and he gave it, was again giving it to them. Then their eyes were opened, 
and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road and while he was explaining the scriptures to us? Let me ask you a question. Answer honestly to yourself. Does your heart burn at the reading of God's Word? You see, what I know to a certainty about these two, and what I want to be true of me, and what I know is true of all godly people, godly people love God's Word. Godly people love God's Word. What's amazing about this, their hearts, their hearts were burning as He just spoke to them about Scripture. Just side note, if there are events in Jesus' life I could just show up at and kind of listen, this would be on my short list of five. Is this. To hear him take the scriptures and talk about how and what they spoke about him, I would love to have been there for that one. But their hearts are burning. But the beautiful thing about this, they didn't know who Jesus was. His identity, who he was, was, was concealed from them. It wasn't until they entered the house and they broke the bread, then their eyes were opened, then they seen, it's him. Oh, just as a note also, can you imagine what they felt at that moment when they realized we were hoping, we were so hoping he was going to redeem Israel. We were hoping he was going to be the one. And they're going home depressed, despondent, down, and as low as two people could probably be because their hopes had been dashed. They killed him. It didn't turn out. It sounded good. They didn't see him, but man, it still... And then all of a sudden, boom, your eyes are open. And you're looking dead in the eyes of Christ. You're looking at Jesus again. And now you know all those hopes and dreams, they weren't dashed. But the opposite was true. Now, can you imagine the movement of emotion of these two? In just a moment, it would radically change. But what made their hearts burn? Scripture. It was just God's Word had nothing to do with the person speaking it. It had everything to do with what was being spoken. And I will tell you, span your Bible, show me a godly person in any part of the Scriptures, and I'll show you a person that loves God's Word. Because godly people love God's Word. We'll be in Philippians later this week at some point. Uh, actually, uh, not too long. But one of my favorite parts of Philippians is in chapter 3 where Paul said, all these things behind me, I counted them laws. All that I had, he said, I counted laws for the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Do you know why I, I, I love that? And I'm just going to tell you why I think that's so amazing. When he pins those words, 
that everything else is lost. All my, what I value most is I want to know Christ Jesus and I want to be found in Him. And I don't care about anything else. But what's amazing about that is he says that after he's been an inspired apostle of God for so many years, three journeys, he's in prison in Rome when he writes that. In all of those years, in all that he knows of God, in all that he's taught, and he said, I'm still not satisfied. I, I, I don't have enough. I want to know more. And that's what he goes on in chapter 3 to say, and oh, by the way, that's how you need to be too. I press toward the goal. You press toward the goal, the prize of the upper calling of God in Christ Jesus. You never stop pressing. Never be satisfied with where you are. See, godly people aren't. They're never content. They have an insatiable appetite for God's Word. That's, that's true of every godly person. And these two, on the road to Emmaus, these two unknown people. But what I do know about them is they loved God's Word. And the hearing of it caused their hearts to burn. So let me ask you, how you doing with that one? <coughs> how you doing with that one? Let me rephrase that. Let's change that. How am I doing? I want my heart to burn. That's the kind of love I want to have for God's Word. And that mean? I don't know anything about these two disciples, but I know one thing. They love the Lord and they love His Word. Now what else do I need to know about it? Now let me let's let's leave here now. I told you I want to tell you about three. We're going to say the same thing about all three, but I want to tell you about three this morning in this lesson, who are godly people, who love God and they love His Word. Now let me take you to the second one. We're going to go to the Old Testament, and here's what's fun about this one too. I don't have a clue who do, who this guy is. I have no clue who penned this. I know God inspired it, but I don't know actually who the writer was. And I think that's interesting again. I know he's a godly person. I know he loved God's word. But that's about all I know about him. Go to Psalm 119. <coughs> Psalm 119. Let me get down... With you go with me to verse 97. If you don't mind, drop down there with me and join me in Psalm 119. In just a second, verse 97. Alright, we're not going to read the whole psalm. Alright, so it's, it's all good. You know, I've only got told this many minutes, so we'll never get there. 176 verses. Do you know why? Because there are 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And in this acrostic psalm, a complete acrostic psalm, he takes all 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet and with eight verses per letter for 176 verses, he tells you, I love God and I love his word. Two verses... Only two in the entire psalm do not mention God's commands, precepts, His law. <coughs> Every uh, 174 verses 
are fully dedicated to telling you, I love God's Word. Acrostic Psalm takes that first letter of the Hebrew alphabet and in eight verses he tells you why he loves God. And then he takes the second word. There was a camp this past year we were at and we do prayer time several times throughout the day and we break all the boys up in groups. And last, this past year we did a, an acrostic prayer. And so you had to go from A to Z uh, for us. And you, know, how, and you had to take each letter and we would tell something related to that letter why we love God and we would and, and we didn't do eight verses per letter like the psalmist but we did one one you know hey he's awesome my God's an awesome God you kind of get the picture he's a benevolent beautiful God and we would form these acrostic prayers and then we would pray them do you know what you know what's fun about that is wait till they get down to X and Z and try to figure out what word are you going to use to praise God with X and Z you know, what do you say? Uh, God, you have x-rayed my heart and know it's all yours. I mean, you get some really crazy things that people say, you know, but it's kind of fun. But but the idea, you get the idea, you just take that letter and you find some way to praise God for that next letter. And that's, that's what the Psalter here does. And he spends every verse nearly telling you, I love God's Word. Look at verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever mine. I have more insight than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, because I've observed your precepts. I've restrained my feet from every evil way that I may keep your word. I have not turned aside from your ordinances, for you yourself have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. For your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. You can stop there. I appreciate the song a while ago, Psalm 19, but same idea, right? Uh, do you do that on purpose? Okay, <laughs> I know. I wonder if you looked at my title. I thought, man, that's really good if you did. Because that's a perfect song for, for what we're saying. It's the same concept in Psalm 19. as in Psalm 119. I love your law. And then guess what he does? In 98 down, he says, this is why I love it. All right? I love your law, and here's why I love it so much. Man, it makes me wiser than anybody. I wonder how many people in the Old Testament were so frustrated when God's wisdom would reveal things to his people that were being said in secret corners and behind closed doors and they had the wisdom of God and they had God's word and would just dumbfound the enemies at times. That's what it does. When he said it makes it wiser than my teachers or the aged, here's what I think he means by that. You would expect a teacher to be wise, right? You would expect someone by a process of time and age to have a certain experience and wisdom. I think the idea is even those you wouldn't expect have this. You have the depth of wisdom that can never be mined. 
because you have the mind of God. In my private personal reading time, I've been reading through the life of Solomon. You know, I was just dumbfounded the other day as I thought about Queen of Sheba hearing about this vast wisdom of Solomon and she travels this long distance because I want to see this firsthand. And when she does, she finally, and I'm just paraphrasing, she basically says, wow, what I heard doesn't even compare to the reality of the wisdom. And here's what I kept thinking. I'm reading that, I'm reading how Solomon's wisdom had grown so wide and so that God had given him. And then I thought, man, if that amount of wisdom would impress and do so much, and that wisdom that God had given him would not be a drop in the bucket compared to the wisdom of God. Wow. That's, that's what I have in God's Word. I love your law. Verse 47. Same thing. Hey, I, I treasure, I love your Word. Again, he just says it over and over. But let me do something with you, please. Back up to the very beginning of Psalm 119. I want to show you something just really briefly here. I think this is important to see. Start reading the very first verse of Psalm 119. The psalmist says, How blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. How blessed are those who observe His testimonies, who seek Him with all their heart. They also do no unrighteousness. They walk in His ways. You have ordained your precepts that we should keep them diligently. Oh, that my ways may be established to keep your statutes. That's good enough. Here's what I want you to see. The psalmist isn't saying, I love God's word just for the word's sake. He's saying, I love God's word for God's sake. I love God's word because it tells me about God. That's why he loves God's word. Who seek him with all their heart. They walk in his way. The psalmist and godly people love God's Word because they love God, and God's Word tells them all about Him. So that's what godly people do. Do you know, Paul said in Romans 1, verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is power of God and salvation to everyone who believed, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. I'll say this again probably as the week carries on, but I just want to remind you of something. It will never be power for you or me until we put it to practice in our lives. It is God's power to save, but only for those who put it to work in their lives. God's Scriptures, they instruct you and I how to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. That's people who put it to practice and put it to work in their day-to-day lives. So godly people, they love God and they love His Word. 
and godly people have an insatiable appetite for God's word. So before we look at our last passage, because we've got three minutes and we're done. But before we do, how you doing with that? How am I doing? How am I doing? <coughs> do, I, do I love God's Word that way? Do I love God that way? Is He the reigning passion of my life? Let me show you one more passage. You only have to go over to Proverbs 2. We're not going to have the time to do justice to this. And I'm not even going to try. I'm just going to read a few, make a statement or two. I think you'll get the point. Wisdom is personified here. It's like the father speaking to his son. It's just like we as parents do with our children. Look at what wisdom says. Look what the father says to his son in Proverbs 2 verse 1. My son, if you will receive my words, treasure value my commandments within you. Make your ear attentive to wisdom. Climb your heart to understanding. For if you cry for discernment, lift up your voice for understanding. If you seek her as silver, you search for her as for hidden treasure. Then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. You can stop there. That's the attitude of the godly person. This is how they behave toward God's word. They treasure it. It is valuable. It's the only thing that has true eternal value because his work never fades. It never fails. It's treasured by the godly. They make their ear attentive. You've already done that because you're here this morning. You're doing it. They incline their heart to understand. They don't just read it. They read it to understand it like the Ethiopian eunuch. They pray. They cry out, God, help me to understand this. That's back to Psalm 119, verse 18, praying that God will help us to understand they seek it. Treasure. Like hidden treasure. I taught a high school class in Florida and when I was preaching there. And I asked them, we were talking about the apostles. I don't remember specifically less of what we were talking about the you know the twelve apostles prior before, you know, Paul and Matthias would join, but and so I said, Hey, do you know the twelve apostles? And wow, I, I wish you could see the looks. If I could get that look from some of you if I were to pick just one of you randomly and go, could you name the 12 apostles? And the, the kids, you know you know how to do when you're... Te- nobody wants to... You know, everybody kind of looks down. They don't want to look up. You know what I mean? They t- that's what they brought to you. I hope Mr. Greg don't look this way. Yeah, they didn't name 12 apostles. <laughs> Peter, Andrew, James, and John, Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, Matthew, James, son of Alphys, Thaddeus, Simon, Jesus, Cariot, Paul, and Matthias. I learned them when I was your age, actually younger than your age. And Miss Eva Smith, she taught me. She taught me. And I learned who they were, and then I got older, and I learned really why I needed to know them. Because my faith is based upon the faith of those men and what they wrote. They're really important to me. But you know what was so sad to me? They could tell you the starting lineup of everybody on the football team. They could tell you position coach for the Florida Gators football team. They could tell you team for the past 10 years or more. They could quote movies all the way from beginning to end. They knew more songs by heart than some of them could count. But they couldn't tell you about the 12 apostles. Do you get the point? Things that are important to us, things that we treasure, that we value. We just take it over and over and over and over. 
So what do you treasure? Well, I know this. Godly people treasure God's Word. They make their ear attentive to it. They make time for it. They have regular reading and spending time feasting on God's Word. So what do godly people do? They love God and they love His Word. All of my lessons this week are never intended to make you feel guilty. I do not abide by that. We can't do that. We don't have time for that. What we have to do is look where we are, be honest, and grow forward. So maybe I failed. Maybe I haven't been as active as I should. All right, it's fine. Fail up. Fail up. If I haven't been as diligent, be diligent. Because that's what godly people do.